Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today because I know absolutely nothing about this subject. Alina, who do we have with us? Uh, I know you don't, but I do, so that's a bonus for me. Today we are heading to Japan with Leslie Downer, who is a historian, journalist and author with award-winning historical fiction novels like The Last Concubine, which is my favourite book of all time, uh, Samurai's Daughter... The Courtesan and the Samurai, and her newest book, uh, Out of the Four, The Shogun's Queen. Welcome. It's an honour to have you on our podcast, especially for me. Thank you. Hi, and whereabouts are you, Leslie? Uh, how are you doing with lockdown? Uh, I'm in London. I'm in my study. Um, up the road is Hampstead Heath, but we can't go there anymore. Um, it's, been, it's not closed down, but uh, we're advised not to go out. And I'm on a very nice little road full of extremely supportive people. Um, we have a WhatsApp for the whole street, and so we're all keeping in touch. Um, and it's not radically different from my normal life, which is sitting at home writing. Yeah, this is coming out as we ask historians this question repeatedly. We're being told it's pretty much just my normal life. But this WhatsApp group <laughs> phenomena thing for the street, the, this is a, a widespread thing because uh, my best buddy Charlie has this going in his little cul-de-sac as well. And I, it's such a lovely idea that people would uh, reach out to help their neighbours. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, there's lots of people that that I didn't know before and I now know all of them and whenever anybody goes shopping they always put a little message out saying does anybody want anything uh, people are sharing food um, somebody was used to work for a restaurant which closed down yesterday and a whole lot of and she somehow land, laid her hands on lots and lots of food which she then distributed around the street uh, no it's amazing no it is all out last night clapping of course of course, is it, we missed it because unfortunately we seem to have picked this exact time every week to record our Down the Pub show. Um, but we are obviously, I mean, I'm an NHS responder volunteer and I know Alina's in Poland, but we're all mm. very proud of our of our uh, medical teams and everything they're doing. I'm, uh, just, I'm just down the road from the Royal Free, mm. just down there, which is so, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Let's talk about your books. Um, Alina, kick us off. Before we do kick us off, I need to tell everybody here, I'm, I'm fangirling, and I know I'm fangirling, I don't care, I really don't care today, but I need to tell you all how amazing this woman is, why a couple of years ago I really was struggling with a decision, should I do history or not, 
And I actually went to Leslie's talk and she inspired me so much to go back to university. And she was so kind and so nice. And we've kept in touch ever since. And I just, I love her books. I mean, if you're not picking up one of her books during this lockdown, then you are truly missing out in a beautiful world and a beautiful research book. So do it, go Amazon, get on it now. But anyway, let's do, let's do a bit of history. Sorry. Right. <laughs> are you finished? Yeah. <laughs> I'm finished. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, so Leslie, I am a complete moron when it comes to Japanese history. Um, and obviously, historical fiction requires a hell of a lot of historical research. So can you tell me, the idiot in the room, um, what time period do you set your books in? Why did you choose it? And what's interesting about it? Right, it's the most dramatic period in the whole of Japanese history. And there were a lot of dramatic periods in Japanese history. Uh, it's the middle of the 19th century. Uh, it begins in 1853, uh, and it's about 25 years after that. So in 1853, Japan had been entirely closed to the Western world for 250 years. And any Japanese that was shipwrecked, you know, and was picked up by an American ship, if he were to find himself back in Japan, he'd have his head cut off. So he didn't go back. And if any, if any Americans were shipwrecked in Japan, they would get immediately taken down to Nagasaki, put on the first boat out. So there were no Westerners allowed in Japan apart from a few Dutch in Nagasaki who did a little tiny bit of trade. And then all of a sudden in 1853, um, it was a bit like... Uh, in the film Independence Day, when those mammoth spaceships appeared over every city in the world, um, <laughs> massive, massive, massive American warships arrived, four of them, um, right up close to the city that we now call Tokyo, which was called Edo at that time. Um, and it was every bit as scary as those spaceships, I can assure you. Um, and they also they had bigger and better cannons than the Japanese had ever seen. Um, and this, these ships were like those Independence Day spaceships. They were like just bigger than any ship could possibly be. And they basically forced by brute force. They said to the Japanese, right, you are opening up to the Western world. You are going to allow us to come and dock in your ports. You are going to trade with us. And if you don't do that, we will blow you out of the water. So that's the beginning of that period. Very dramatic. That's then, insane. <laughs> how did the Japanese react to this? Should would they not just well, like go home and leave us alone? Who are you? It was, uh, they knew who they were because the point is there were 20 Dutch merchants who lived in Nagasaki and they kept the, Brit the Japanese abreast of what was going on in the outside world. So people in the outside world uh, didn't know anything about Japan, but Japan knew about the outside world and they knew that they actually knew some American ships were on the way and they were extremely worried and scared. Um, some of them thought, well, this could be okay, but most of them, most of them thought, um, we can't fight back, which was absolutely true. We absolutely have to get in to let these guys what, do what they want to do, but they were very resentful. And the result was actually a sort of civil war in Japan. Um, there were some people, some Japanese, who said, we have to trade with the outside world, it will be good for us. But the majority of samurai thought this was unbelievably appalling that these kind of brutes should come in and force Japan to open up. So what an absolutely fascinating time to set your books in. So, so what happens after they open up? Um, it took 15 years between 1853 and 1868, which was a period of mammoth civil war. The point with my books is um, I'm writing women's stories and 
the, the heroine of my last book, The Shogun's Queen, is a true woman who really did live and who played an incredibly important part um, in this, in the, the attempt to keep those foreigners out. Um, but her story is not, not told because she was a woman. Um, just recently in Japan, they had a TV series about her. And so finally, now they're also doing the Me Too thing. They're having women's stories as well. But all my books are the women's stories. Um, this particular woman um, was, was ordered to go up and to marry the shogun in Edo, which meant she entered the women's palace in Edo, Edo being Tokyo now. And the women's palace, there were 3,000 women living there. And the only man who could enter was the shogun. So it was a kind of like a harem, you could say. Um, it's a bit of isolation, like, like we are now literally in isolation. Except there's 3,000 of you all, all in there at the same time. But that's a good point. Yes, 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 it was. And once you went in, you probably didn't go out. And also the higher ranking you were, the less free you were. So if you were married to the shogun, which she was, you never went out. So it was a bit like me having to contact the people on the road saying, can you do a bit of shopping? She had to send maids out um, to, do, to do errands for her. There is a reoccurring theme in your book, or books, sorry, just to be a bit more accurate, that I'm really interested in. And you know exactly where I'm heading with this, Leslie. Right. You're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about love. Can you tell us more about this reoccurring theme? Right. Um, so my, my second novel is called The Last Concubine. And when I wrote that, that was the first of the four that I wrote. And I made this discovery, which I thought was unbelievable. Um, but it was that there was no word for love in Japanese until about 1880. Um, no word for romantic love or, sh or chivalrous love. There was love for your mum and dad or for your mum, and there was, there was sexual desire, but there was no idea of, you know, I'm dying to fall, to meet Mr. Wright and fall in love and get married, that kind of, that kind of love. There was not a word for that. And if you don't have a word for something, then it sort of doesn't exist for you. Um, so people, if you were um, a decent, respectable girl, you would have your marriage arranged by your parents, and you would have you probably wouldn't even meet the guy um, until your wedding day. Or if you did meet him, you know, it would be a brief kind of polite, how do you do? Uh, and then you find yourself married. So you get married to somebody that you don't know and you then do the best that you can. Um, now, that's if you're a woman. If you're a man, you could have quite a few different sorts of relationships because you could have your wife on the one hand. You could also have a mistress or concubine if you could afford it. Um, you could also go to the pleasure quarters where there were courtesans and there were also prostitutes and you could also go to the geisha district and you could so you could have lots of different women that you knew so you didn't look for you didn't expect to have love at home um, in fact where you might want this uh, feeling which you didn't have a word for might be with a geisha um, the geisha were the ones who didn't sell sex because you could get that easily somewhere else, but they sold romance. So here you were, you know, a miserable downtrodden sort of merchant dealing with money all the time and, and hard work and, and having your father getting at you and so on. And then you could go down to the geisha district and you could have what felt like a romance with this woman. 
Um, and she would be unbelievably beautiful. I mean, way more beautiful than your wife, way more beautiful than you could possibly expect. And she would tell you that you were unbelievably handsome. Um, whereas, of course, you knew. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you believed her. But you were probably just some, you know, very unattractive sort of bloke. Um, so you could have a kind of fairy tale romance with this woman. Of course, it costs money to have a fairy tale romance with this woman. Um, so there was no word as such for love at all. There was no love and marriage going together like a horse and carriage. Um, and the, the kind of evidence for this is that around 1880, which is well on in our period, when Japan had opened to the West, it was becoming westernized, and in came Western books. And there were translators translating Western books. And they came across this word love and all this business about chivalry and about, you know, gauntlets and whatever knights in armor did and and about falling in love and they thought whoa how do I translate that into Japanese and they sort of had to think hard about it and in the end they had to coin a new word rei which first appears in about 1880 so rei now means love um, but as I said before that time there, there was no word for love and what happened if you did fall in love was um you, it was probably with the wrong person. It was with someone that you could not legally marry or get together with. So the people who did tend to fall in love would be somebody like a prostitute or a courtesan. Now, if you were a prostitute or a courtesan, you were supposed to, you know, to sleep with rich men for money, which the money then would go to the, the house that owned you where you lived. Um, and you would be living in the pleasure quarters. Now, in the pleasure quarters, there were lots of humble young men who were, you know, they were kind of workmen or they were um, clerks or something like that. Um, and you might fall in love with one of these humble young men who were probably young and rather good looking, whereas the merchants you had to sleep with were possibly old and a bit gross. So you'd fall in love as a being a prostitute, as I said, or a courtesan, you'd fall in love with a humble young man who didn't have any money and therefore couldn't buy you. And if he couldn't buy you, then he couldn't have you because you were owned by the house where you worked. And basically there was no chance of you two being together. So the two of you, um, there was only one option and that was to kill yourselves together. And that became quite a normal thing in, yeah, quite a normal thing. It was called love suicide. Um, and it was quite a normal thing in, in 17th, 18th, maybe sometimes 19th century Japan. There are many, many, many kabuki plays are about love suicide. And that was the great sort of romantic tragedy. So love was a sort of romantic and tragic thing. You go off and you kill yourselves together. Um, there was actually an author called Dazai Osamu, who, um, very famous author, who in about 1949, I think he, he, had love, he had three love suicide pacts. The first one, the girl died and he didn't die. And the second one, the girl also died and he didn't die. And the third one, they, they both died. Um, Was he cheating and, the first two times, do you think? Um, not sure. Not sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, said, you said that in the 1880s they did coin a word for love in japan so yes. has i'm just fascinated to know before we we go back and stick with the history so has that sort of thought process has that culturally evolved since then then is there the western idea of love now do you call that evolution um i don't think it's evolution they may have um the japanese let's see the japanese had to take on board an awful lot of western stuff and i don't think it's evolution 
but I do think that it is um, that, the, yeah, um, they entered a world in which the West was the most was more powerful than Japan, and there were also um, very unpleasant treaties signed whereby if you were a Western merchant, you know, trading in Japan, you determined the exchange rate, you determined how much commission was going to be paid and so on. And, and also, if you were a Westerner and you committed a crime on Japanese soil, you were tried by other Westerners. So you'd probably get a slap on the wrist. So the Japanese hugely resented this. And they, the, the sort of theory was, well, you know, Japanese are primitive, we can't have Westerners tried in their courts, which was a load of old rubbish. Japanese had a fantastic legal system. But in order to persuade Westerners that they were, you know, like us, which is not at all to do with evolution, it's just different, that they took on lots of Western ways. Um, so they took on Western clothes very, very quickly. They started wearing from 1868 onwards, the blokes started to have their hair cut and they put, a, put aside their samurai swords and started wearing Western clothes. Women were wearing bustles and bonnets and they were doing the waltz and they were eating, if they were posh and could afford it, eating French food and so on. Um, so they also took on lots of Western ideas. They also painted in the Western style. So I think they were rather smart. I mean, we didn't adopt their ideas. Um, Actually, we did adopt their idea. That's another story. But, but they did adopt our ideas and love was one of those. And it probably has become absorbed into the culture to some extent um, at this point. Um, so there are, yeah, there are lots of love stories now. If you watch a Japanese movie, of course, there are love stories um, in, the, in a way that we, that we would recognise. But also in historical films that you see, could, you know, modern historical films, it's the same thing that when people fall in love, it's usually people of different classes, people that can't marry. And then they have to do something like run away together or kill themselves. That's, um, that's actually quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to go back to uh, old Japan and talk a bit about a topic that I know that everybody's interested in, especially me. I absolutely love, love, love this topic. And it's about the geisha. So could you tell us a little bit more about the pleasure quarters in old Japan? Okay. Um, well, in old Japan, there were an awful lot of prostitutes and courtesans roaming around. Um, the shogunate... Old Japan, there was no concept of morality to do around sex. That whole Judeo-Christian thing about, you know, it's okay to do it in marriage and it's not okay to do it not in marriage, That but they didn't have that in Japan. It was fine for a bloke to do it wherever he fancied um, a bloke. But um, they, they liked a lot of order. So in about, I think, 1615, they decided to actually build walled cities of pleasure. And the most famous one was outside Edo, which, as we know, is now Tokyo. It's still there, by the way. It's no longer a pleasure quarters, but it is a kind of red light district. And these were at the time, um, they were walled cities with a moat around them. Um, the, the famous one in Edo was called the Yoshiwara, and it was known as the Five Streets. So there was one main street with five cross streets, and all down there were houses of pleasure, which meant the houses where the courtesans lived, lovely restaurants, um, the houses where you could go and meet a courtesan, um, and there were also entertainers. And these were actually the cultural centres of the whole society. The courtesans were probably the most literate women. Um, they were not 
the court, the top courtesans didn't have to sell sex. It was a kind of value-added thing. If you if you were available to everybody, then you couldn't charge much. Um, so if you were you know, a rich young man and you wanted to have a night with a courtesan, you would have to go along to the Yoshiwara and you'd go and apply uh, and say, um, I'd like to spend a night with either with the one whose name you knew or not. Um, then they would say, well, you'll have to wait a bit. And they, you would go off to maybe a restaurant and their entertainers would be sent to take care of you. Um, now, you'd have to pay for the entertainers. You'd have to feed all the entertainers. Um, and you'd have to be paying. So you'd have to be paying as much money as possible while you were waiting. Um, and you might wait, say, three or four days. And then when you did finally get to meet the courtesan, of course, you're paying for every minute that you spend in her company. And you would do things like, you know, you'd have a talk. She would be a, a brilliant conversationist, very witty. Right, if you think about the courtesans of old Venice, like that, or of Paris, that sort of thing. Um, she'd also probably... She might be a poetess. I mean, they had salons sometimes. She might do a tea ceremony. Um, in the early days, she might also, she might, she might dance very beautifully, Japanese dancing. She might play a musical instrument. She might sing. Um, and after all that, you had spent by then a lot of money because all this little entourage you've gathered around you all need to be fed and you also have to pay them. Um, and then... You, you, you try and find some polite way of saying, uh, uh, I wonder if I might possibly stay the night. And she might say, come back another time. Um, and she, she could do that. And then you'd have to go home. And then you could, and that would probably, that would probably happen. And that would go on maybe two or three times. So you'd have to be very, very rich or you'd just go bankrupt. Um, and then if this top courtesan felt like it, um, and if you gave her enough presents and so on, then maybe you'd get to spend the night. And then little by little, these jobs, the jobs separated. So the courtesans just became the ones who sort of sat and kind of presided and maybe, maybe bestowed sexual favours. And the job of entertainer was taken over initially just by men. And the word for the man was arts person. The word for arts is gay and the words for person is shah. So geisha, geisha. And it, as I said, the very early ones were men. And then very quickly, women took over around 1750. And soon geisha were women. So the geisha were the entertainers, while the courtesans were the courtesans. The courtesans were covered in makeup. They had these huge headdresses. Um, they, of course, they had black painted teeth. All women who had all adult women had black painted teeth <clears throat> um and the courtesans also had an obi which is the kind of kama band that you wear around your kimono and theirs was tied at the front um and the meaning of that was that if you were very 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 lucky you might get to untie it but the geisha their obi was tied at the back and they were legally not able to take the courtesans customers so from the very start, the geisha did not sell sex. They were entertainers and they were professionals who were proud of their professional qualities um, and who could actually make a living by being musicians and or dancers and or singers. Um, and also, of course, they were great conversationalists. And just like you and me, that didn't mean they were all virgins. Of course, if they felt like having sex, they could have some sex. But they did not pay. They did not sell sex for a living ever. 
So Leslie's basically dispelled a, uh, a big myth for a lot of people there with the, with the geisha, because I know quite a lot of people believe the, the opposite. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, I've given lectures about geisha for years. I mean, years and years. And I always say modern day geisha um, spend five years, like university, learning their skills, um, learning to dance. They dance, their dancing is of a level with the Bolshoi ballet. We're, they, we're talking professional dancing. And their singing is of a level with opera singers. You know, they are, they are professionals. And I give these lectures. And after I've given the whole blooming lecture, somebody will stand up, usually a bloke in a raincoat, um, and will say, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but do they have medical facilities like in Amsterdam? And I... For God's sake, what have I just been saying? <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, talk to I us. Think, I think my, it's, 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 it's wishful thinking by men. That's my opinion. Men really want to think that somewhere in the world um, there are these nice, you know, little doe-eyed kind of brown women who, who are not like us rough, tough Western women, but are ever so nice and will do anything you like. Whoever thinks that has not also been to Asia because they're not like that. They're just like us. <laughs> just, just as tough. Talk to us about the geishas in World War II. Um, well, in World War II, rather as now, there was lockdown. So you, you eventually they had to stop operating as geisha. Um, one thing they had to do, most of them had fabulous collections of kimono. And they, first of all, would have to sell their kimono because they were running out of money. Secondly, they might end up, you know, trading an incredibly valuable kimono for some potatoes because they were starving. Um, they also, many of them formed factories to help the Japanese war effort. And they went and worked in factories and because they knew about fabric, they made hot air balloons. And the idea, I think, was to float bombs on hot air balloons from Japan over to America. I don't think it ever worked. But that was one of the things they were doing. But World War II pretty much brought the whole geisha profession to an end. Um, up until then, it had, there had been, you know, 80,000 some geisha. And the geisha heyday was actually the 1920s. After World War II, they kind of had to start all over again. It, it'll, I think it's going to be the same with us now, actually, that once this is over, we're going to have to start all over again, some things. But the geisha certainly had to get going again. And when they started up, the other thing that happened was in 1958, um, prostitution was made illegal. 
which only meant that it went underground. It didn't mean anything else happened. But that too affected, despite the fact they're not prostitutes, it did, it did impinge on what geisha could and couldn't do. So modern day geisha are extremely different from geisha in the period that I write about, which is, you know, before World War II. So you must have um, done a lot of travelling in uh, Japan to do your research. Um, tell us a little bit about how you went about it. I mean, it's such a long way to go and it's such an out there subject to pick. I mean, where do you go? Uh, who do you speak to? And, and how do you do your research? Well, um, I, I went to Japan. Uh, oh, all right. I'll just tell you. I went to Japan in 1978 and I lived there for pretty much five years at a stretch. And I lived um, in a city where at that time, as far as I knew, there were no other Westerners. Two others turned up who became my friends, but we were, that was it. So somebody could arrive at the station there. It was a proper city we're talking about, you know, as big as Leeds or something. He, said, he showed up at the station and he said, where is, the English, where is the woman English teacher? And they sent him to the university where I was working. It was me. Um, so there were no people to teach you Japanese because there were no Westerners, um, but people couldn't speak decent English. When they did speak English, it was very, very stilted. So I learned Japanese very fast. I learned, I speak, um, I would say, I speak quite reasonable Japanese. I mean, I can interview in Japanese. It's not, it's not learned Japanese, it's picked up on the street Japanese. So I, I would say it, it's reasonably kind of colloquial. Um, so that's, and also, I also did things like tea ceremony. Um, so I know how to comport myself in Japan, which is very important. I know how to carry my body in, a, in the proper womanly way um, and how to walk properly and how, to, how, how not to be pushy and obnoxious, um, but to be sort of, you know, to sort of hold back, which is, which is a much, which it's, it's much better. It's easier to operate if you're English in Japan than if you're American because we're used to kind of holding back a bit. So this is all relevant. That's, so that um, after that, I came back to England and I looked for ways to get back to Japan. And so I started writing. That's how it started. And I would get a commission um, I, to, uh, to do books, sometimes to do journalism, sometimes. And I would then go back to Japan and um, spend as long there as I possibly could until my money ran out um, and, and probably much longer than I actually needed to do the research because a huge part of the fun of writing a book is the research. Absolutely. Also, when I'm in Japan, I mean, I know, I know how I don't, it doesn't cost me. People think Japan's very expensive. I mean, you know, if you, if you know your way around, it isn't. It's, it's just normal. Tell um, us about the coffee shop. Oh, all right. Um, well, this was when I was uh, researching the book about geisha. And this is actually what I was just saying is extremely relevant, that I turned up in Kyoto and I was living in Kyoto. And I, I, um, I guess I didn't realise that this little, little kind of little old, oldie worldy area I was living in was actually one of the geisha districts. And I was trying to think of how on earth I could break into the geisha world. And I could see them walking around, but I knew that it wouldn't work to just barge up to somebody and start talking to them. And every morning um, I would go down to the coffee shop just down the road and I would sit there by myself, filling in my, writing my diary, having some very, very, very nice coffee and some nice toast. And I became friendly with the lady behind the counter who ran the coffee shop. 
and there were all these women hanging out in the coffee shop as well, all sitting there reading their papers, um, often with curlers in their hair. This was like, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm a bit of a late riser. I mean, um, and so, and they were clearly a bit, bit, they were late risers too. And so we all sat around there, not paying much attention to each other, um, not hassling each other, all, you know, doing our thing. And meantime, I was out there. I had a brilliant idea. I went and I spent a lot of time with the hairdresser. He told me lots and lots of gossip, lots of stuff. And I met the wig maker. So I found, you know, there were ways I was doing my best, but I still hadn't actually met any geisha as such. And something like two months went by like this. And... um, and eventually I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, this is, this is getting a bit long and I'm, I'm, my money's not going to last forever. Um, and the lady that ran the coffee shop leaned across the counter and said, uh, I thought you said you were writing a book on geisha. And I said, yes. And she said, well, what about all these ladies here in this coffee shop? They're all geisha. And, I, and they then started, they came up to me and they said, well, yeah, why don't you come, to, come around to my place? And I realized they were off-duty geisha. And what we all had in common was we all got up late in the morning. We all went to this coffee shop. Um, we were also, all of us, childless women. Um, some of them some of them had, were ex-geisha and they had married. Um, but normally, if you, are, if you are a geisha, you can't be a wife. So when you get married, then you stop being a geisha. Um, and then I started going to their houses. Also, one day I was walking down the same road and I saw a geisha coming towards me and I just carried on walking. And then she said, hi. And I looked at her, did a sort of double take and realized it was this geisha with all her makeup on and her kimono and everything else. It was the girl with big glasses and a short skirt who I saw in the coffee shop every day. So I, I love this I story. Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I listened to Leslie tell this story and I thought everybody deserves to hear this story. So that's, <laughs> that is why it has been put into this podcast. But um, you've written not just the four books, you've written a book on Geisha and you've written another one um, about Sadiako, um, basically a lady who was the influence for Madame Butterfly. So could yes. you tell us a little bit about her? Yes. Um, so... Sadiako was a geisha. And if you, you know, anyone that thinks geisha are prostitutes, Sadiako was the mistress of the Prime Minister of Japan. So we're not looking at prostitutes here, we're looking at, you know, something much, much higher level. She was born in 1870. She was very beautiful, very, very feisty. Um, And eventually she stopped being a geisha because she got married. As I said to you, once you marry, you stop being a geisha. She married this kind of, um, this sort of very alternative musician actor bloke called Otojiro. And he had a theater troupe. They were the first modern theater troupe in Japan. And they, he decided they should make some money by going to America. And they were the very first professional theater troupe, professional Japanese theater troupe to go to the West. And they went, they sailed to San Francisco. They arrived. Um, They, of course, did all their plays. It was all men actors. There were no women actors because just like Kabuki, that was how it was in Japan. Men did the acting. Sadiako was just the wife. But they got to San Francisco. They realized that Americans were not going to go for um, a man playing a woman, certainly not in 1899. So they had the perfect answer. Sadiako being a geisha, of course, um, was trained to dance, sing and act. That was another thing they did. They were actresses uh, and they were celebrities. 
Um, so she went on stage and she was so beautiful, absolutely mesmerizingly beautiful, that the audiences went crazy. The audiences had a bit of, bit, bit of a trouble with, bit, bit of a problem with Japanese music and singing, but they had no problem at all with Sadiaka. And she was, supposed, she was said to be more beautiful than Sarah Bernhardt, who was the great actress of the day. And her death scene was just amazing. It was unbelievably realistic, um, much more thrilling than any of the Western actresses' death scene. So they toured right across America. They performed for uh, the president in Washington. They performed in, in New York. They came over to England. They sailed to Liverpool. They performed in London in a small suburb of London called Notting Hill, rather a remote and distant suburb. Um, they performed for Edward VII, who was uh, at the time still Prince of Wales. Then they went to France um, and they were taken on by Loie Fuller, who was a dancer, who became Isadora Duncan's manageress later. And there they performed at the Expo in 1900 and the absolute star of the Expo was Sadiako. Then they carried on touring they went they actually went back to japan got more actors they went up to germany and this unknown american dancer called isadora duncan went with them they went to germany they went up to um st petersburg they there they had dinner with the czar czar nikolai ii who was the one who later on got executed then they went down to italy now meantime puccini was in the middle of writing madame butterfly and he Things Japanese were just a huge craze. So he wanted to get his Japanese, you know, heroine to be sort of right. So he had his story, but he wanted her, he wanted um, his heroine to be perfect and Japanese. And he also wanted um, the music to be authentic. And he went and saw Sadiako on stage in Milan. He saw, he went for four days. He saw, they did three performances a day. He was at every single one. He tried to find an interpreter, couldn't find one, so he couldn't interview her, but he saw her acting. And there were three different elements. One was her theme tune, um, which was a piece called Echigo Jishi, which she played on the koto, which is a kind of zither. Um, he took that, that is in Madame Butterfly, that little kind of riff. Um, and it is Madame, Madame Butterfly's theme tune. It occurs again and again. Secondly, um, they had cut their plays right down so that they normally kabuki would last from dawn till dusk. They cut it down to 30 minutes with lots of fighting, lots of dancing, and usually almost everybody committing harakiri because they knew Westerners really liked that bit. Um, so when the, when the Italian critics saw these plays, they thought, they, they thought this is the way Japanese dramas are. And they said um, Japanese dramas rushed to their end with terrible efficacy. And shortly after he saw these plays, remember that terrible efficacy, um, Puccini wrote to his publisher. At that point, they had three acts. He said, I want to cut out one of the acts. I want to have just two acts. I want my play to be, to rush to its end, terrible and efficacious. So he took that from it. And lastly, the Italian critics um, saw, Sadiaco knew very well what her audience was like. So she was the ultimate sort of feminine sort of, childlike you know creature the italian critics and all the critics assumed that japanese were primitive because they weren't western so they they said you know this primitive childlike little creature and then she turns when she kills herself with a savage cry and so puccini um made sure that the libretto of madame butterfly if you look at it you'll see that chotosa madame butterfly 
is um, she's childlike. She speaks with infantile grace. She says, you know, we are a people sort of small and humble. And then she turns when she's told her child may be an outcast. She turns on Goro, the marriage broker, with a savage cry. So she has those same sort of primitive characteristics. So all this was Puccini's take on Sadiaco, and it very much influenced Madame Butterfly. Of course, the key thing is that what the Italians seem to get was that she was acting. That They thought, this is how Japanese are. Um, but no, she was uh, just like us, of course. She was, a, she was a feisty woman. Though, As I said, in those days, the critics all thought that Japanese were all sort of simple, simple, primitive, you know, native types. It's, it's just mind-blowing. This is stuff that I know nothing about. Um, just your more recent work, have you not also been... Um consulting on a ballet oh yes yes i've had lots of fun recently um madam butterfly comes out quite often and whenever it does i always have um an article in the program and i've been i gave a talk at the royal opera house at one point that was very thrilling and was also on a panel at the english national opera actually less than a month ago before we all locked down. Um, also, Northern Ballet came to me about a year and a half ago. Northern Ballet is based in Leeds, and they said they wanted to do a ballet about geisha. So um, I, they, they had read my books about geisha, and they decided to do the story of Townsend Harris, who was the first Japanese consul, um, and he had a geisha called Okichi. So I, I was their historical consultant. They also had a, a, a marvellous screenwriter uh, who put together the actual sort of uh, scenario, and then they had unbelievably brilliant uh, choreographer who turned it into a ballet, and a fantastic composer who made the music for it. So the first half of this ballet is the whole story of this of two geisha, um, who, which is it, it's a, it's pretty much true. One was the geisha of Townsend Harris, the other was the geisha of his secretary Henry Huskin. Um, and they were, of course, Townsend Harris, this is the American consul, demanded geisha, so he got them. Um, and then he just sort of ditched Okichi, he ditched his geisha, and she ended up killing herself. So the first half of the ballet is about that. And then the second half of the ballet, rather like those Japanese films you sometimes see, the kind of ghost stories, she comes back as a ghost. And there's an am there's amazing choreography where all the ghosts, they come up, there's the day of the, the the days of the dead, the festival of the dead in August, Obon, um, when the, your dead come back and you dance. It's not a sad time; it's a very joyous time. Your dead come back and join you, and you all dance. And so, in the ballet, you can see on stage there are the ghosts, and they're dancing. Of course, the the living people can't see them, and you can see from the choreography that the living people can't see them. It's um, fascinating. So, I I love that. Um, you found so many ways to express and get across all of this really tenacious research work you've done as a historian and researcher. You've managed to kind of present it in so many different ways and work with so many different mediums to get it across. I just, it's amazing. Yeah, no, I've had a wonderful time. I love Japan. It's a great place. And it's, it's also, it's maybe the same with everywhere, but the more you get to know about it, the more fascinating it is. And it's such an extraordinary culture. They've sort of, kept their culture in a way it's a very it's a very different different culture a very different place and every every aspect of it is 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 beautiful and perfectionist quickly just to finish up leslie i'm going to ask you one quick question very 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 quick if you could go anywhere in japan right now where would you go oh 
Uh, that's a very difficult question because I've been nearly everywhere in Japan and I love absolutely everywhere in Japan. I was just recently, this isn't quite the answer, but I was just recently, I was back in Kagoshima, which is like the Naples of Japan. It's tropical and there's a volcano, a live volcano in the bay with smoke pouring out of it. Um, and black ash and it sort of dumps black ash on the city and you can sit in a hot spring up to your neck in hot water and you look out and you can be looking at this volcano which is pumping out black ash that's pretty thrilling I wouldn't mind being back there. <laughs> Leslie thank you so much for joining us to talk to us a bit about Japanese culture, Japanese history and how you incorporate in incorporate it into pretty damn good historical fiction i know Alina's a massive fan and i will get myself my own hands on a book too um as soon as possible thank you join us tomorrow when we talk to peter campbell to find out all about his work as an underwater archaeologist it's amazing he's basically dirk pitt don't miss it Thank you so much, Leslie. It was absolutely an honour to have you on. Remember, people, stay safe and more importantly, if you can, stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.